Welcome to the Wander Learn Show. I'm your host, Franz Typhon. I am here with a guy whose name is really too long for me to pronounce, but I'll try. Let's see. François Xavier Paradis Garnon. Perfect. <laughs> you got it right. All right. All right. That's the end of the podcast. It's been nice talking to you. See you later. <laughs> if I can accomplish that, just saying your name, I feel great. All right. So we've already talked before. We talked about uh, you being uh, one of the first or in fact, the first tourists after the Taliban took over in Afghanistan. So go to the show notes and f listen to that episode. But this episode is an even bigger adventure, if that's even possible. And that is you walking from Angola, the border of Angola, not just walking, but traveling from the border of Angola all the way to Uganda, traversing the Democratic Republic of Congo, otherwise known as the DRC. What the fuck, dude? That is totally epic. All right, so let's dive in. First of all, why? So after the Afghanistan experience, I was I was looking for some more thrill and also part of why I was traveling in the first place was to discover different cultures and, you know, just see the world, really. And I figured, okay, if I'm going to go to Africa, and I'd been to Africa before in 2019, I did Egypt, Sudan, Ethiopia, uh, Somaliland. But I thought, okay, I'm going to go to, you know, Sub-Saharan Africa. I want to see something different that's truly unique. Not just go to Kenya like everybody else and go to the Maasai and, you know, see see one national park. I thought if I'm going there, I'm going to really dive in and go up, you know, out of my comfort zone. And I figured the DRC is probably the best place to do that because it's still very unique. The second largest rainforest of the world is there. Um, they've got, they don't have that many tourists that go in. It's massive in terms of size. It's a challenge. So it just appealed to me. And I, I wanted to see places that had zero tourist infrastructure. Uh, none whatsoever. So I thought I have to go to a place that sees hardly anybody. And I, I also read uh, Tim Butcher's book uh, called Blood River. And I liked what he said in the book. And it really looked like an interesting uh, country with a lot of history and a lot of challenges to overcome. So I thought, okay, this is it. I've got to try it and, and see if I can survive uh, crossing it. So you did something that was unusual because most people who cross the DRC take the Congo River, which is, you know, challenging interesting fascinating and worth celebrating but you did a much harder thing which is going overland yeah. tell us about that in order what that's is that? right so you're you're right most people who will go to the congo will let's say fly into kinshasa and then take a boat to kisangani and then leave by plane or the other way around but i thought no if i'm going to go in there the boat would just be too easy because once you're on the boat you don't have anything to do and you're just going to cruise along to your end destination. I thought, no, if I'm going to go there, I'm going to actually go in the forest. You know, are there roads? I don't know. I'll figure that out once I'm there. But I, I wanted this, the challenge of of just, yeah, like seeing pygmies in the forest. Do people hunt? What kind of food do they eat? I wanted to see the locals and interact with them. And I felt like on the boat, I would be secluded from the jungle life. You know, I'd, I'd meet the passengers on the boat, but I wouldn't actually see what's happening deep inside the the rainforest so i'd just be missing out on that if i took the boat i figured overland was more challenging but also potentially more rewarding as well a lot of people love the logistics side of things and the drc in many places don't they don't have electricity and let alone atms so i know you carried about two thousand dollars in cash uh but there's not going to be many money changers 
along the way. And the Congolese franc, if I remember correctly, is pretty worthless. And so you need a huge stack of bills to have, you know, let's say $50 is going to, you know, it's a lot yep. of bills. And so how did you deal with that with the $2,000? I know you got robbed uh, $300 or so along yep. the way. Somebody pilfered your bag when you were not there in your room. Yeah. Yep. But and I know you left some behind and that kind of stuff, but what about the actual changing of money? Did you have euros or dollars or not Canadian yeah, so dollars? I, so yeah, I had. I was lucky enough to meet a, f a French Canadian airplane pilot in Kinshasa because I couldn't actually withdraw money with my bank card for some reason in Kinshasa. I tried different ATMs and it didn't work because I guess my bank thought somebody was scamming me, I'm not sure. So I couldn't withdraw it from the ATMs and I, I started to panic. Oh my God, I'm going to cross the DRC. I don't even have you know cash on me. So this airplane guy, I did a bank transfer to his bank and he gave me cash that he had, US dollars. So that's how I got the bills. But then to actually change them to francs throughout the journey, it was a challenge. I'd have to, um, you know, get to a place that was large enough and then meet, uh, you know, bigger towns uh, once in a while. And I'd have to ask around if somebody, it was really tough. Like sometimes I could spend three hours just looking for a guy that had enough cash to exchange for a hundred bucks. Uh, you know, the doctor knows somebody. It's usually like the educated people in the village. So, okay, the doctor knows someone with a, you know, the school principal knows another guy who has a bit of cash and eventually it, it would work. But yeah, I had to be really careful with my expense, with uh, what I spent because I always had to keep enough francs on me to last for days and weeks. So yeah, it was a challenge. I had to go around and ask uh, a bunch of people. Yeah, and it's tough because also you were exposed to the elements. Um, you could get, you had to keep things in waterproof uh, containers. Yeah, Ziploc bags, yeah. Yeah, Ziploc yeah, yeah. bags. But even like then, that. once you're on these uh, pirogues, like the, the canoes, yeah, it's the risk of toppling over and falling in the river is so high that even yeah, if they're in bags. One time yeah. I think you said that you actually laid down flat on a pirogue on a yeah. canoe just so that because it was so unstable that if yeah. you were kind of standing upright, you could theoretically, yeah. you know, capsize. Yeah, I'm, I'm fairly tall. I'm like 6'4 and over 200 pounds. So the canoes are made for smaller guys, lighter guys. And I was kind of oversized for the canoe in the first place with my backpack on top. It was it was a bit too much. So yeah, I would rather like just lay down flat in the canoe than risk because they, they brought me like a chair that I could put on, on the canoe to, to uh, sit while they were paddling. But I, I figured it would just take them off balance and, you know, it was just too high and the stability was not there at all. So I preferred to lay down with the moist, damp floor of the canoe than to risk losing my backpack in the water to a crocodile. <laughs> it was not worth it. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. And somebody as tall as you and then you're hanging around pygmies. <laughs> that That's a incredible. Ice. There, by the way, there's going to be a link to your long article that kind of summarizes your entire trip on my website with including a bunch of photos that are just absolutely spectacular. So definitely go to the show notes and click on the link to see the photos and the entire story. We're just going through some of the highlights. And one of the highlights, which I found fascinating, was right from the get-go, like you barely had left Kinshasa, the capital of the DRC. And then all of a sudden you practically run into a genocide, a fucking genocide's going on, and nobody even knows about this. It's between the Teke and the Yaka people. Teke and Yaka, who's ever heard of that? And yet here you were, I mean, it just shows you how deep in the jungle and how deep the DRC can go. It's the size of Western Europe, and there's a, there's a minor genocide going on, and nobody 
nobody outside of the DRC and probably half the people in the DRC didn't even know what's going on. Tell us about that. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy, uh, Francis, because like you said, it was a terrible situation, but hardly covered on the news, let alone even in the country. Nobody really spoke about it much. Uh, and I thought, okay, I'm just leaving Kinshasa. Things are going to be easy. You know, things are going to really... I thought, okay, things will get hard once I'm deep in the jungle, deep in the bush. That's when things will be challenging. But the first few days will be easy. And I was wrong. Like like you said, just out of Kinshasa, maybe 200 kilometers east, I run into this situation where I'm, I'm going to a place called Banduduville. Um, you can check on the map in the show notes. And basically... People are, are warning me. Villagers come to me and say, hey, you got to be really careful. Don't go to that area. Uh, something's happening there. there. There are killings and people blocking the roads. And, and I'm wondering, what are they talking about? I don't even have cell network at this point because, as you know, once you're a bit away from cities and, and the DRC, there's no internet and no signal. So I thought, what are they talking about? Nobody told me about this. And as I get farther and farther and farther, it's harder to get transport. I have to walk even more. Occasionally a bike comes and I have to beg the guy to take me with him. With him. And eventually I just get to this town where I see some Red Cross workers and uh, not everybody's panicking. And basically I learned that, yeah, there's a genocide going on between two tribes and a full-on uh, civil, like local civil war, so to speak, tribal war. And I'm like, oh, man this is the one road I want to take to go to Bandu Duville to then go into the jungle. I've taken days to come here. I don't want to just turn back and cancel my trip. Uh, it would destroy the entire plan. So I just think about this rationally. Okay, am I involved in this conflict whatsoever? No. Is it a group like Boko Haram that's targeting Westerners specifically? No. Do they have any reason to hate me uh, logically? Not really. Okay, do I, how badly do I want to do this trip? 100%. Okay, I've got to go on the road and just roll the dice. And I spoke to some refugees that were coming from the other side. And I asked them, hey, you guys are refugees coming from there. What do you think will happen if I cross these checkpoints? Do you think I'll be killed? Do you think I've got a chance to survive? And they said, look, you're white. You're not really related to the conflict. Uh, they have nothing against you. I think you'll be fine. I don't, I don't see why they would you know, harm you. So... Anyways, I met some people that were related to these militiamen, and then eventually I ended up on a truck crossing one of the checkpoints. And it was scary and terrifying. You know, they've got like blood mixed with um, paint and some local potions on their face. They've got like machetes. Some of them had uh, like hunting rifles too. Not like heavy weapons, but just hunting rifles. And they're kind of high on some local drug. And I think a lot of them were drunk as well. And it's really out of a movie. Uh, have you seen Blood Diamond with Leonardo yeah. DiCaprio? You know, when the, they come to these checkpoints and the rebels are a bit aggressive, that's kind of how it felt. And, you know, I, I was like, oh, my God, what a fool you are. What, why did you decide to come? But then I see this one guy who's sober and we kind of lock eye contact and I kind of just, you know, gesture at him and he gestures back. And, and I looked, even though I was terrified inside, like totally terrified. On the outside, I, I looked really calm. I was just sitting on the truck on the top of the roof, looking kind of normal peaceful, relaxed, not looking that, not showing that I was stressed at all. And it worked out. You know, they, they saw me, they were a bit surprised, but they asked all the other passengers to come down to check their ID, like where they were born and to, to check if they were part of the wrong ethnicity to potentially kill them. And like, they just saw me and they saw that I was, I was obviously not the target they were looking for. And they just kind of let us pass. You know, it was, it was scary, but yeah, I had no other choice really. Well, you did have a choice. I mean, you could go around to Kinshasa if you wanted to, but I think yeah. one of the key lessons in your your 
your entire blog post yeah. is the fact that be confident even when you don't feel confident inside. That's right. The, yeah. Your exterior over and over and over and over again in yeah. your blog posts, yeah. you emphasize, yeah. you have so many experiences where you have to kind of be bold and sometimes combative yeah. in order to get your way because if you look timid, then they will destroy you, you know? So yep. it's kind of like yeah, yeah. When, a, when a grizzly bear is charging you, you have to hold your ground and just not move and just say, no, I'm gonna hold my ground here. And then the grizzly or the bear will, will say, well, maybe not. <laughs> exactly, I think that's a good analogy. Uh, you know, this guy, Mike Spencerbaum that you had on your podcast, that's actually one of his analogies. He said that when he went to the Congo, it's exactly that, it's like with, bears you have to show that you're not afraid especially if it's a corrupt official or somebody that has a lot of power and authority you just have to stand your ground not be too aggressive necessarily but show them that you're not afraid and they'll respect that i know it's kind of primal and you know sometimes it's sad that we have to do this but it's we're, we're animals like humans we have that hind brain and you know that's what we got to do so i think if i had shown any sign of anxiety on the truck and if i had started to panic and even worse gotten off the truck and started running they would have definitely chased me and things could have gone terribly wrong. But because I was just, and also I think it was surreal for them. Okay, they see this white guy with a big hat sitting on top, like on the roof of the truck with a bunch of passengers. They were also wondering, like, who's this guy? Like, maybe, like, you know, they don't know who you are. Maybe you've got more power than you appear to have. And they're, they're also afraid on some level too. They're like, who the heck is this guy? Like, why? Why is he on the truck here? Okay, this is kind of suspicious. Maybe we don't want to miss with him too much. Um, and then, yeah, it's just knowing quickly in the group who you can rely on and who you cannot. So I could see one of the guys that was talking to me was quite aggressive and he was asking for money, like, hey, Leblanc, est-ce que t'as de l'argent? Like, hey, do you have money for us? So I could tell this guy is not the one I have to deal with. This guy is a, is a danger. So you just have to quickly scan. It's, a, it's facial reading. You have to look. Which one of those guys looks looks like he's the most rational and most uh, normal? Okay, you find him. Does he see you? Yes. Can you kind of talk to him a little bit? So yeah, you have to do these these things really quickly. Uh, it's it's stressful. It was really really stressful. I remember uh, Francis when I was on that trek at that checkpoint thinking, okay, you you've gone beyond your red red line. You know, like we all have a red line that we don't want to cross in terms of comfort and danger um, exposure. And I remember thinking, okay, you've definitely gone too far. Like this is beyond my comfort zone, and I regret doing this. Um, it's yeah, it's just it's uh, it's really scary. But in the end, logic prevailed. Uh, you don't want to think with emotions. Oh, they're killing people, therefore I cannot cross. That's an emotional response. You have to think logically. What kind of group is this? What kind of war are we talking about? How does that conflict relate to me? You know, things like that. The challenge, of course, that anybody's listening to this is thinking to yourself, well, there's that just unknown factor, the volatility yeah, of, of war when people do act irrationally. You're thinking you're dealing with rational creatures, but as you also pointed out, yeah. we're animals. And, and as of animals, course. we are driven by emotion sometimes, and especially yeah. when you uh, are, are mixing that with drugs and other types of yeah. things that kind of distort your perceptions. And you've got these young kids filled with testosterone and other oh, yeah. you know problems and they got a gun in their hand then suddenly yeah. all sort lots of things that could be benign and should be benign yeah. uh, end up unraveling very quickly and and but that's the chance that you take i mean that's that's, true. that's the risk uh, that you take but it is fascinating to hear you know every one of these anecdotes that you faced but just a side note on that like i think and you've been to the drc so you know yourself the, the thing is people would be like oh but it's a war it's more 
dangerous than other situations. Why would you put yourself in that situation? But the thing is, even the DRC, like before meeting those rebels, even the normal cops and the normal army were super aggressive with me. I had to hide from them when I had to sleep, go in people's barns to avoid them. When I saw them, they were like following me, walking for a kilometer, asking for cash and like always harassing me. So the risk of getting robbed or harassed was already super high, even without those rebels. And I thought, like, yeah, there's a high chance, there's a high chance that might rub me, definitely, very high chance. But if you don't offer resistance, like, usually people that rub you, it's, I don't know, usually it's quite rare that they will, like, kill you on purpose, especially if you're giving your stuff away, you're not uh, putting up any resistance. So I thought, I'm already being robbed by the normal police and the normal officials, you know. And the funny thing is, they treat these rebels treated me better than the actual police and the actual officials. That's the weird part. The same thing happened to me in the Central African Republic when I went uh, across the border there, and there was a place that a whole section of the of Central African Republic that had been t overtaken by the locals and had, they had kicked out the authorities and the police. And mm -hmm. it's the exact same thing. They actually treated me nicely. They yeah. they they had no they they took me into the old government office. Uh, they looked at my passport and all that stuff and they let me go. But, at the, but it did feel very sketchy at the beginning. And that ends this episode of the Wander Learn podcast, where we explore travel, technology, and transformation. If you'd like to see the show notes with links to what we've talked about, go to wanderlearn.com and click on this episode. If you'd like to connect with me, just remember F Tapon. That's my first initial and my last name. F Tapon is always my social media username. My website is ftapon.com. Do you want to leave me an anonymous voicemail where you can make a comment or ask a question? Then go to speakpipe.com slash ftapon. Furthermore, if you'd like to get rewarded for supporting my projects, then go to patreon.com slash ftapon. That's where you can pick up some remarkable rewards for as little as $2 a month. Now, five quick favors. Number one, subscribe to the WanderLearn podcast. Two, download it. Three, share it. Four, review it, and five, sign up for my newsletter at wanderlearn.com. Our theme music was composed by Eric Stratman. This is Francis Tabon encouraging you to wander and learn.